Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The numbers are shocking. 12 million African slaves brought to the Americas starting in 1619. We often focus on the end of slavery in the U.S. and its repercussions on our country to this day. But to truly understand history, it's important to go back to the beginning. Coming up, Frank Harris III will join us. The Southern Connecticut University professor is working to mark the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves brought to what is now the United States. First, a history series this month by the New York Times is highlighting prominent black Americans whose lives were ignored at the time of their deaths. In Overlooked, the Times has now written obituaries for individuals who were left off its obits page. We wanted to learn more about this project and the men and women it has profiled. So joining us from a studio at the New York Times in New York City is Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense. This is the New York Times archival storytelling project. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. I want to let our listeners know they can join us, too. The number 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So, Veronica, we wanted to back up a bit and find out when we think about um, a a newspaper like The Times or other uh, large newspapers, what were some of the criteria for individuals who um, the papers wrote obits uh, once they passed away? So one of the really interesting things is that the New York Times has published obits since the very first paper was ever printed. We always felt like it was important to mark the passing and the death of um, prominent individuals. And I think the criteria all along has been if someone made news in their lifetime, then their death was also news. But what we discovered and what Amy Padnani, the editor who started the Overlooked Project, discovered is that there were a lot of really remarkable men and women who, whose death never were noticed in the New York Times. And that was because uh, during uh, those times, uh, many of the uh, uh, articles and obituaries were written by uh, white men writing about uh, also white men who passed? I think so. I mean, I think that there was a time, and by time I mean like a hundred years, where um, where the newspaper had a different focus. It it had a certain reader and a certain kind of person who was an editor, and I think that things outside of that orbit often got missed. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about how you got involved. Again, you're editor for Past Tense. What does this mean for you uh, to uh, look back in history, look at the archives? I understand the, the Times archive is 600,000 pounds to figure out uh, who are the people that we should know about today. Well, the New York Times archives is one of the most incredible journalistic archives in the country. It's very, very rare how extensive it is. And so I partnered with um, Amy Panani in the fall, and we started talking about doing a special overlooked package for Black History Month. And we just started to keep a list of names, and names like Scott Joplin passed up, kept creeping up, and we were saying, oh, my God, Scott Joplin, king of ragtime, kind of a forefather of jazz in America must have been covered. And we keep going back and searching, and we're like, nope, his death was never covered. So 
it was a mix of things like that, kind of keeping names, lots of conversations, lots of spreadsheets, and um, just going over the past and the present and kind of trying to fill in the blanks in between. Uh, when looking at the start of the Overlook Project, uh, highlighting women who uh, didn't have uh, obituaries written about them after their death, uh, this month profiling both black men and women for Black History Month. Uh, you mentioned Scott Joplin. So tell us about him. What happened to him near his time of death that um, because even though he had such accomplishments, uh, he was not remembered? Well, you know, I think at the time, ragtime was seen as kind of a lower class music. And he really, um, as opposed to classical music, right? So he was born in 1867 or 1868. Um, We're not entirely sure. But he taught himself to play music. He was obviously incredibly gifted. And ragtime was the music that African-Americans played. He completely elevated the art form. He wrote one of the first African-American operas, Trimonisha, which he won a Pulitzer Prize for belatedly in the 2000s. And so he kept trying to say ragtime and African-American music compositions were as important as classical music compositions coming from Europe. And he dedicated his life to it. And he really, you know, did not, he was constantly struggling. And at the end of his life, He got syphilis and ended up in a mental institution, and his death went really unremarked largely by the journalistic media. So when you uh, are thinking about writing these obituaries today, uh, what are some of the the, uh, things about his life that the Times included in the obituary? Um, Well, it's interesting because one of the things, for example, is that we know that Trimonisha was an influence on George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. And so even though Porgy and Bess becomes one of the most popular operas of the 20th century, and most people hadn't heard of Trimonisha, you realize that especially these people, their influence might not have been known during their lifetime, but we all are influenced by connection, what we see, what's in front of us. And so in a similar way, there was a guy named Granville T. Woods that we covered who was called the Black Edison. And we are nearly positive that Thomas Edison knew of his inventions, that Thomas Edison was much more um, obviously well known, but um, but that Granville T. Woods affected the world of engineering and ideas that he was part of, even though his name is hardly known at all. Tell us, tell us more about Granville T. Woods. He was the developer of the third rail for electric trains? Yeah, so he's credited with developing the third rail. Um, he revolutionized transportation. So he allowed, during the time, he invented safety and communication mechanisms so that there were a lot of accidents where when trains switched rails, you didn't know that another train was coming. So he basically allowed, he invented mechanisms mechanisms that allowed for trains to talk to each other. And they're really the basis of the mechanisms that we use today. Uh, I was reading uh, the obituary uh, this morning on uh, Overlooked, and we have a, a link uh, on our website, wmpr.org slash uh, where we live, for our listeners who want to uh, learn more about the people that we're discussing uh, today here on Where We Live. Uh, my guest is Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense, the New York Times Archival Storytelling Project. Uh, but Granville, uh, he had uh, inventions, uh, and they were taken from him, and, and he fought back. He, he tried to get the patents for those. Yeah, I mean, he spent 
a lot of his time and money and it kind of ruined him trying to get the patents back. And the patents were sold for what would have been worth $1 million at the time. So if you imagine that, what that money, if what $1 million meant in 1891 to a black inventor who, you know, we're talking about the age of reconstruction. It's just after the end of slavery and so many blacks couldn't read or write. And here was this guy who not only was educated, but had really a deep understanding of electricity and transportation systems. I mean, it's really striking to imagine what people did with, they did so much with so little. Uh, Veronica, uh, the Overlooked uh, series again uh, also profiles uh, black women that we may have not heard of. Uh, Let's talk about uh, some of them. Let's start with Margaret Garner. Can you tell us about uh, her and what she did? Sure. So Margaret Garner's story is actually probably pretty familiar to a lot of readers through Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. Margaret was the inspiration for Beloved, and she was a young woman, just 21 years old, who ran away from a plantation with her husband and four children. She was pregnant at the time, and they were caught. The house they were staying in, it was her cousin was a free black. They'd gotten as far as Ohio, which was a free territory, and the house was surrounded um, by bounty hunters. And she killed her daughter rather than allow her to go back to slavery. And it's a horrifying thought. Um, her intention was to kill all of her children and then kill herself. And what we know is that the trial was so covered all throughout the country that it really brought home the idea that a lot of white Americans had been grappling with, which was, is slavery a fate worse than death? And the fact that a woman who by no means was mentally unstable did this really spoke to the horrors of slavery. So Margaret would be an example of having uh, newspaper clippings um, from years ago uh, to uh, look through um, as you're uh, coming up with the obituary uh, today. But what about uh, women like uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant? This is someone I had not heard of before. Also, uh, she made a name for herself, but she may not be well known today. Exactly. So Mary Ellen Pleasant her story was nearly impossible to condense into the 800 or so words that um, we use for these overlooked obits. But the short version is that she is a woman who was, we believe, most likely born in slavery. And she became a gold rush era millionaire in San Francisco. She was also a fervent abolitionist. Um, A lot of people don't know that the Underground Railroad ran in California. California was a really complicated place for free slaves because because of the way that ways that the laws worked, um, slave owners could go to California and take slaves that were free and say that they weren't they hadn't been freed. And so there was not only a lot of kidnapping of slaves, but there was also kidnapping of free blacks claiming that they were slaves because, of course, you know, there weren't proper records. And so it was actually a terrifying place. And she really, through her wealth and her power, protected people, helped people get to Canada, and just kept fighting um, for the freedom of black people all throughout her life at the same time that she was this really prominent businesswoman who gained tremendous wealth. 
And Veronica, why is it that we don't know a lot about her? Um, you know, when we think about other uh, freedom fighters like Harriet Tubman, uh, as an example, is it because of the the way that she went about making her money? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So she had restaurants and boarding houses. And, you know, there are a lot of different stories. But one of the things that I read was that not only did, you know, rich men in the city, um, founders of the Bank of California, go to her for advice, um, because eventually it became known how well she invested and how smart she was. But she would also kind of use the invisibility of servitude. So a waitress might be working at one of her restaurants or boarding houses, and she advised them to pay attention carefully to the conversation. So part of her, like, sort of gaining tips on how to play the market, how to invest, how to strategize, she was an early investor in Wells Fargo, for example, was that she used her staff and herself as as a way to like as a network of information in a way that um probably was not done before wb du bois wrote about her and wrote about how different she was than someone like a harriet tubman I love this line in her obituary. She shrewdly eavesdropped on the wealthy people she served and using the information invested bits of her inheritance. Uh, What happened to her uh, near uh, the time of her death? Was she able uh, to, uh, you know, retire wealthy or I'm just curious what happened to her wealth? Well, you know, there's a very complicated story about the man who ended up kind of becoming her business partner, who we believe might have also been her romantic partner. He... A lot of the money and the amazing mansion that um, she lived in was held in his name, which makes sense. Even in the late 1800s, it was very difficult for a woman and a black woman at that to have property and investments. And when he passed away, his wife and children sued her and she lost a lot of her wealth, both in losing those settlements, but also in the legal battles that she fought. She was also pretty feisty, and she wasn't afraid to, uh, you know, correct people when uh, they used terms that she didn't like, including "mammy." Yeah, so um, she was involved in a pretty scandalous divorce case. She was named as a um, as a sort of witness person of interest in this divorce case, and. Um, and people started calling her Mammy Pleasant. And she told the San Francisco Call, which was a newspaper at the time, that um, that she does not like to be called Mammy. And she talked about getting letters addressed to Mammy Pleasant. And she literally wrote back to people on their own letters, do not call me Mammy. And she said, I won't even waste my own stationery on them. And so she was very, very... Um, confident and fervent about who she was and the respect she deserved. Uh, Veronica, uh, as uh, the time started this overlooked uh, project uh, last year, um, how engaged have readers become in also forwarding you names of people that uh, they believe uh, you and your staff should check on and, and write obituaries about? Well, you know, I I think it's probably not surprising that the New York Times readers are passionate about history. But I think what it's been so interesting is that obits really tell us something about life and people have been particularly passionate about the overlooked project and so um there's there are there's an email at the end of 
each sort of landing page, and we get hundreds and hundreds of suggestions. Often, um, sadly, the people that we did cover, and so the rule is is that the Times need not must not have noted the death at all. And sometimes, especially in the fifties or sixties or forties, we might have noted the death in one single line, and even one line means that they we can't go back and do an overlooked. So. Um, so we love the suggestions, and we definitely act on them. But it's a very um, painstaking process to kind of go back through the archives and make sure that we this person truly was overlooked. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today is Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense, the New York Times archival storytelling project. For Black History Month, the Times has written obituaries for some prominent African Americans who at one time were overlooked by the newspaper. After the break, we're going to continue to hear from her and also talk with the Connecticut Connecticut historian about notable African Americans in our state. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Do you read the obituaries? The New York Times, like many large newspapers, published the obits of notable individuals. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, that meant prominent people of color were often left off those pages. But a history project by the New York Times has a team writing the obituaries of people who accomplished a great many things, but were overlooked because of their race or gender. We've been talking to Veronica Chambers, joining us from a studio at New York Times. She's the editor for Past Tense. Again, it's the Times Archival Storytelling Project. And joining me now in studio is Stacy Close, Dr. Stacey Stacey Close, Vice President for Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University, also a historian. Uh, Dr. Close, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, for listeners are, who've been reading the Overlook series, if there's a particular uh, profile that really stood out to you, you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, first, Stacy, I wanted uh, to just bring up, you've been on the show before and you've mentioned that you actually grew up in the South. Tell me about what your uh, experience has been with obituaries. Is this something uh, growing up in your town? that people paid attention to and growing up in the South, were there certain people that were left off the obituary pages? Uh, Growing up in the South, there were a number of people, particularly people in the rural areas that were left off of uh, obituaries. So if you lived outside of the county seat, uh, the opportunity uh, to be found in a newspaper obituary uh, was um, very, very rare uh, for African Americans, particularly um, in the uh, early 20th century. Uh, you would also find that in terms of even the cemetery and cemetery markers, uh, there, there were no markers often for African Americans who were buried in the, in the early 20th century. So uh, the knowledge of who they were, what they did, uh, virtually disappeared. And these were people who were extremely prominent people in terms of uh, Baptist associations, union associations, uh, and even small business people. Did it fall on the uh, African-American newspapers uh, to then be the ones to publish obits on, on notable individuals? Uh, in, in some of the urban areas, it did. Um, but in the more rural areas where there was no paper, uh, all you were left with uh, was a, a, the, the, the memory uh, based on what you, could, you would have in terms of the, the oral tradition. 
Remind me of the state that you grew up in. I, I grew up in Georgia. So when Martin Luther King died, uh, what did you remember about how uh, the newspaper in your town covered that? Uh, I actually, I actually wasn't around um, then to to really be able to to know a whole lot. I was only two at the <laughs> time, um, but uh, there was uh, virtually no coverage uh, in terms of the death of Dr. King. Uh, and in fact, even when it came to civil rights protests marches. Uh, it was considered to be something that was off limits uh, in, in my hometown, not just off limits in terms of the white power structure, but also the black power structure, uh, in fact, uh, told one of the um, prominent civil rights leaders of the day, Hosea Williams, uh, who, who lived nearby, to go home and not um, engage in any civil rights protest, in, in, at least in my hometown. Mm-hmm. When we think about a Black History Month, again, uh, remembering individuals uh, in our state, uh, when we think of uh, notable people, uh, Samuel Cote, P.T. Barnum are the names that people recall. But as a historian, important uh, black residents that we should know more about. Could you name some of them for us? We should know more about uh, people like uh, Deacon James Mars, uh, who was a deacon at the Congregational Church, uh, Black Congregational Church here in, in Hartford. Uh, and the reason I mentioned uh, Deacon James Mars was because he, he actually was one of the um, strongest proponents in fighting for the freedom of an enslaved woman who was, was brought here from, from Georgia in the 19th century. Uh, he not only signed the petition that she should go free, but also took a lot of um, verbal bashing and even threats against his life for doing so. Uh, what about um, some uh, women that uh, we may not know of, uh, like Marietta Canty, for one? Who was she? Uh, Marietta Canty was an actress. Uh, in fact, she starred in movies with James Dean and Marlena Dietrich and was a, a wonderful, wonderful actress. And she had a great career in Hollywood, uh, but decided to forego that career in Hollywood and then come back to Hartford first to take care of family members, but she also began to take care of the community. And what I mean by take care of the community, she became a prominent leader in Connecticut's chapter, the National uh, Congress of Negro Women, uh, which was an important, important move for her. She not only did that, but she she also decided that she was going to run for office. Uh, She attempted to run uh, to be a part of the um, town council, uh, wasn't able to win a seat, but she still nevertheless ran anyway. Uh, she became a prominent member of Metropolitan AME Zion Church. Uh, and in fact, when her very good friend Gwen Reed was sick, she was a driving force in raising money and funds to take care of Gwen Reed uh, in her, her, her passing moments. Dr. Stacy Close is in studio with me, Vice President for Equity and Diversity, Eastern Connecticut State University, also historian. And joining us from the New York Times studio is Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense. Again, this is the New York Times archival storytelling project that we were learning about uh, earlier. Uh, Veronica, you had mentioned uh, Scott Joplin earlier and and other uh, individuals who, again, uh, were very successful, but near uh, the end of their lives, they ended up in poverty, uh, sometimes because of racial bias, despite their accomplishments. Accomplishments. Uh, uh, any of the uh, obituaries that you and your team have written where that really stood out to you as uh, very tragic when you think about um, the, the end of their life? 
Um, one example I think that stood out to us was um, Alfred Hare, who was a painter who had formed this collective of painters in the 50s and 60s in Florida, who kind of became known as the highwaymen. And he would paint these landscape scenes. And he was young, he was in his 20s. And, you know, it was a time when African American painters weren't sort of embraced by galleries and the sort of mainstream media. And he did really well and really inspired people. And he died in a barroom brawl when he was quite young. So I think about people like him and, and of course, Margaret Garner, who died quite young. And, you know, there was just a number of them who, even Philip Payton, who was a big developer in Harlem, you know, they, their lives didn't because of the struggle, their lives um, ended so much sooner than one would hope, and without the recognition that we now give them, it feels a little sad even to get to know these lives so well and to wish that um, at some point they could have known what they would have meant to all of us. Uh, another uh, one that was profiled in the Times: bicyclist Major Taylor, once the top cyclist in the world, he ended up in a pauper's grave. Yes, exactly. And it's funny, if you're a sports fan, um, there's actually a Hennessy ad where they completely recreate um, one of his great races. And he did this race called the Six Day Race, where he literally bested everybody. And, um, you know, the professor mentioned uh, some of the clergy and Major Taylor was a Baptist and he refused to ride on Sunday, which... um, which inspired a blues song. And so the European races actually changed some of the days of the races because it was so important that he race. Um, He was known as the Black Cyclone. And at a time when bicycle racing, the turn of the century before the advent of cars, I mean, that was the sport. There was such a fascination with speed all around the world. And he was fast. Uh, uh, Stacey, I'm curious uh, your thoughts on the Overlooked series and some of the people, again, that The Times has chosen to profile today. Uh, I'm I'm just amazed uh, by the work. And I'm actually really, really surprised that Scott Joplin was overlooked, given uh, his importance to um, not only to music, to culture, uh, but also um, to, uh, to New York in general. Uh, when uh, we think about Black History Month, uh, often uh, this is the time uh, where um, Americans might be hearing for the first time uh, notable individuals. Uh, but at the same time, because you're a historian, uh, is there something missing from our curriculum here in the state of Connecticut when you mentioned uh, some of uh, these individuals that are they being taught in the schools? I and mean, what, what is your take on that? Uh, I, I, I'm, I know some of them are being taught, but I'm not sure of the, the depth of uh, what, what is being taught. Uh, for me, I often took the approach that uh, I, would, I would teach from the local to the national. And, and what I mean by that, um, I often worked very hard to, uh, to make sure that when I talked about something locally, it tied directly into what was going on nationally. And, and it worked really well for me uh, because I could talk about Reverend Dr. James Pennington and what he was doing locally and how it tied into what Douglas and others were doing on the national level. Uh, one name that might be familiar to our listeners is Fortune. Uh, he was an enslaved man who died in Waterbury. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, Fortune um, dies in Waterbury, uh, Connecticut. Uh, worked extremely hard um, in terms of, of farm work. Um, but tragically, um, his, his bones 
uh, were were preserved and then um, hung in a closet and were were pulled out for students to look at for a number of years in the classroom um, repeatedly. Uh, now he would eventually be uh, buried uh, properly, but for years, decades, in fact, uh, Fortune's bones were were revealed and shown to students uh, in in Waterbury. So, oh, who discovered his story and helped get him the proper burial that he deserved? Um, actually, um, I, I first learned about the uh, the story from um, Frank Mitchell at the um, at, at the Amistad. And, and from there, um, it was part of a, um, a statewide effort and, and, in, in part, uh, some folks from the national arena who, who, who worked to, to get him buried. Uh, speaking of efforts in the state, uh, we've discussed uh, Ebenezer Bassett uh, before on the show, but this is an example of uh, grassroots effort locally in New Britain and elsewhere uh, to bring attention uh, to this individual. Can you tell us more about Ebenezer, just to remind us? Ebenezer Bassett uh, was um, a famous ambassador, but he was also a, a student at what is now Central Connecticut State University. Uh, and, and Bassett was one of the people who was profiled in a, um, in a 1915 Hartford Current article on some of the great, 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 great blacks who lived in Hartford uh, in, in the early period. Uh, he was able to not only uh, master uh, the world of international politics, but also was an extremely uh, talented student during his days at Central. And now there has been efforts uh, to get more recognition at Central Connecticut State University. Yeah, in, in fact, Central has now named one of its buildings for Ebenezer Bassett. This is where we live. And studio with me, Dr. Stacy Close, Vice President for Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. And uh, joining us from New York Times studio is Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense, the New York Times archival storytelling project. Uh, again, Veronica, we've been uh, focusing in on uh, some of the profiles for Black History Month. Uh, but I'm curious, uh, you know, what's next for the project? Well, um, you know, I just wanted to mention that what Professor Close and you were talking about, one of the reasons we put so much time into this is because we hear a lot from teachers and families that for Black History Month, the resources feel really dated, that it's always the same five people from the civil rights movement, the same five people from the abolitionist era. And we really take it seriously, the responsibility and the opportunity to give readers a resource to share information in this way. So I, I'm just applauding the work that Professor has talked about and, and you guys for putting us on the radio and letting us talk about it. Well, thank you, Veronica. So tell us what's next. Um, we are looking to keep expanding Overlooked. I think our next project will probably be for Pride Month, and we're looking at specifically um, what we can do around LGBT heroes and heroines who were um, not covered in the paper. So um, that's probably going to be next. And also every week overlooked posts on Wednesday online and in the paper, a new profile. So um, Wednesday's the day to read more every week of the year. Veronica, before we let you go, why do you think uh, people uh, like reading obituaries so much? 
Well, it's interesting. I think one of the things about the overlooked is because we're not writing about the person at the time of death, it's not an announcement of a death. It's really a story about um, their life and what the lessons learned were. And I think that in that way, it gives it a very timeless feel. And, um, you know, I think some of the obituaries, especially of the more famous people, you read them and it's a kind of, I can't believe they're gone. Yet when you read an overlooked obituary of someone like Sylvia Plath, who so many of us read, for example, um, it's just a different insight into a story that intrigues you and tells you something about how someone lived and what their lives meant after their death. And uh, Dr. Closa, before we end, uh, if there was one person that uh, you felt that more people should know about in the state of Connecticut, not to put you on the spot, but you're a historian, so uh, tell us uh, one other person that we should keep in mind. One other person that we should probably keep in mind is George Goodman. And I, I say George Goodman for this reason. He was the editor of the Hartford Chronicle. Uh, the Hartford Chronicle was a um, black week- weekly newspaper created by blacks in Hartford in the 1940s. Uh, and Goodman edited the newspaper, and it produced some wonderful stories on what was going on, not just in Hartford, but what, also what was going on nationally as well. Uh, so that's one person I think they should, should remember. And what's important about him now is that the newspaper uh, that he was the editor for uh, has been digitized. And so now scholars can go in, take a look at the paper in a more detailed manner. Again, Dr. Stacy Close, Vice President for Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Also to Veronica Chambers, editor for Past Tense, the New York Times Archival Storytelling Project. Veronica, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Up next, have you heard about the 400th? Don't worry. My next guest says you're not alone. He'll tell us more about what the 400th means coming up. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. History includes many milestones and key events to remember, but my next guest is betting you haven't heard about the anniversary he's working to highlight. Joining me now in studio is Frank Harris III, professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. Welcome to the show, Frank. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you. So tell us, what is the 400th? <laughs> I remember I asked you that question right. back in uh, September, mm-hmm. I think it was. Uh, and At I a community to, event, yeah. Yes, I used to ask people about what does the 400 mean to you? Uh, and most people don't know. And the 400 represents the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans brought to America, 1619. And it's been kind of my mission to let the world know about this occasion. I think it should be recognized. I think it should be observed. And because it's, it's a very important time or, or occasion or event in, in our history. So uh, tell us why you have been drawn to bringing attention to this, uh, this anniversary. I guess it's, I mean, I don't have any logical explanation, I guess. It's just that my feeling is that these Africans and those who followed after them, I call it into the jars of slavery, 
should not be forgotten. I mean, these were human beings, and during their lives and during the lives of so many enslaved Africans, they were not recognized as human beings with souls. And so I guess my thought is that I want to do something that will help to recognize them, to help give their spirits or or their memories something that they did not have while they were alive. So tell us more about uh, the Africans that were brought here in 1619. So this was uh, British occupied uh, what is now Virginia? Yes. um, The English uh, had colonies. Well, they ruled America at the time. And many and one of the things that I that I've discovered in doing my research and and, and covering the 400 is some some views that I had some some thoughts that I had that turned out to be inaccurate uh, and primarily because the history books have said it to be mm-hmm. so. One of the uh, one of the things was that we were always told that they landed at Jamestown was actually Point Comfort, Virginia, which is and Jamestown is maybe. 40, 50 miles away. But uh, from my understanding, these Africans, uh, let me backtrack a little bit more. These Africans were also said to have been seasoned Africans. In other words, Africans who were not directly from Africa, but were the descendants or family members who had preceded them into slavery and were born in the Americas. Uh, What I've discovered is that that that's not true. They were directly from Africa. Um, they were actually taken from aboard the the Portuguese ship from Angola. Uh, Angola was colonized. Well, it wasn't Angola then, but the Portuguese were colonizing Africa and had basically this. It was Luanda, and these Africans were brought from there with the intention of taking them to Vera Cruz, which was one of the biggest uh, slave ports in Mexico uh, for these slaves. And that ship was intercepted and pirated, and the 20 Africans were taken aboard that ship and then brought to Virginia. Uh, Frank, as you uh, travel around the country, bringing, asking people what, what they think about the 400th, and they, and they kind of scratch their heads and look at you and say, what do you mean? Uh, what do they say to you after you tell them about uh, this date in history? Well, it's it's... I get a, a, a variety of different answers, and I was in Harlem last fall in October, and I I, I was at one of the, I can't remember which restaurant it, I was in, but there was a woman with, there with her husband from Oklahoma, and we started talking, and I interviewed her afterward, and she said she had no idea of the 400, had not thought about it, and I asked her you know, and she she was very emotional about it in in terms of talking about how she felt. And when I asked her what she would say to the first Africans if she had the opportunity, and that's one of the questions that I usually will ask people: What would you say to the first enslaved Africans if you had the opportunity to speak to them? And she said basically she would say thank you, which is one of the things that I would also say. Thank you for for living. Thank you for all that you endured. And when I asked her husband that uh, later, he said, I would say, I'm sorry. And he paused for a long time. And then I said, about, and he said, about what you went through, about what you experienced. So the general reaction has been total unawareness and then 
something like uh, just an emotional feeling about, wow, I never thought about that. I never considered it. This is where we live. In studio with me, Frank Harris, professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, Frank has been working on raising awareness about the 400th. Again, this is an anniversary of when uh, enslaved Africans were brought to uh, what is now the United States back in 1619. Uh, Frank, when we think about how we mark this date, it's obviously not a celebration, uh, but in the sense of also talking about the context of what was happening uh, in uh, what became in the United States, this idea that Europeans were fleeing religious uh, oppression um, to come here, but at the same time oppressing others and, and also impacting uh, Native Americans that were here as well. Yeah, l- let me back up uh, a little bit because some people, there are those who say that it should be a celebration, which is interesting. I, I get into that. I know you're giving that look there. And and I had, and I talked with um I'm trying to think of the um, the former Black Panther leader in, in Oakland now. But I spoke with her during the time in which Aretha Franklin's funeral was going on, that long, drawn-out affair. <laughs> and, uh, and she says, you're not celebrating the death of Aretha Franklin. You're celebrating her life. And that's the analogy that some others have used. I interviewed a woman in Mississippi who said, we're not celebrating slavery because I stopped her. I said, well, are you celebrating slavery? She said, no, we're not celebrating slavery, she said. We're celebrating the life of those Africans. Now, I still prefer the term to say observe, commemorate, more than I say celebrate. Uh, But I understand that other perspective as well. But back to the other point that you made, I, I... It is one of the great ironies, I think, that uh, those who claim religion would find a rationalization for slavery. And it's, but you find all these kind of rationalizations that occur at all times in, in different places. Uh, I saw a speech that you gave, I believe, in Hartford uh, recently uh, about how personally uh, when you said that you would say, I'm sorry to uh, these enslaved Africans that were brought here. Actually, I, would say, I, I would say thank you. Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, others would say I'm sorry. But in the sense of also thinking about how far African-American men um, have been able to come. Yes, I mean, and and I don't want to forget about African-American women because uh, together um, what they endured, um, and you could say with women, and we, to me that should be the original Me Too movement because women, black women, African women who were enslaved had no rights. Neither did the men, but the women were subjected to rape. They were subjected to, there was, you could not say no. Um, but so much has happened in this country, and I I think, yes, it is true that there have been a lot of advancements. Uh, my, my feeling is that it's important that we don't forget, that we, uh, that we are always, we have our freedom, which was something which, and although freedom is relative, we have our freedom, which those ancestors did not have. And it's important that we're vigilant about protecting that freedom, particularly in this time now where we have so many people who are um, under the spell of Trumpism, I would call it, where people are so quick to, uh, to, to kind of go back to where we were. 
Uh, when we think about uh, what's happening uh, in the news, uh, when we think about the legacy of slavery in this country, uh, in Virginia, uh, politicians uh, uh, being brought to attention because of wearing blackface or dressing up in KKK robes. Uh, what do you think when we think about the contemporary context? I mean, what, what's going through your mind as you see uh, these accounts? Well, I... When I when I hear about people with blackface, I've never seen personally someone with blackface. I have seen someone wearing a KKK outfit at a Halloween party back when I was a college student in, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale back in the 70s. Um, I guess from my perspective, if the person has demonstrated that that was a long time ago and owns up to it, I can kind of get past that because I know that there are so many people who have experienced or have partaken or partook, whatever the the word is, um, in things that they would not be proud of now, hopefully that they would not be proud of now. And it's what they're doing now that to me is important, how they're living their life now. However, when you don't own up to it, when you flip-flop as the governor of Virginia did, that's not good. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that has hurt him in this. If he'd come forward and said, yes, this is what I did, this is where I am now, um, and and let's talk about this, that would have been the way to go. Again, Frank Harris is in the studio with us, professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. He's here on Where We Live to talk about um, his efforts to raise awareness about the 400th. Uh, uh, you've talked with other uh, residents about what they think uh, about this particular date. So uh, how should Connecticut move forward uh, locally? And what would you, you mentioned you want to see this observed nationally, but locally, what are you working on? Well, I'm, I'm working on, uh, at, at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, where I, where I teach, I'm working on trying to get something uh, established there where we're going to bring in some and have a ceremony. Again, it's still in the planning stages, so I don't want to commit the university um, too much to something, but it, that's where I'm looking to do something. I've also spoken with um, other places in Connecticut. I don't want to put them on the spot because we're still planning that. But I'm looking to have an event or ceremony um, or something. I mean, I've had, I have a Facebook page where I, I put out, um, I basically had a query. I guess from my column in the current, actually, in which I, I basically talked about how should we commemorate, and people gave their suggestions. I've had people say uh, we should toll the bells. I've had people say we should have an educational forum. I've had people ask me to come in and help them um, observe this event by coming in to talk. Uh, my my feeling is that there is not any one way to observe, and I've kind of. I, I came up with a list of things that I think particularly um, Americans of African descent sh- should be doing, but I don't want to limit it to just black people. I want This should be something that the whole country, um, Americans of all races and ethnicities should be observing or, or, or commemorating in some way. Are you surprised that there isn't more national attention on this, on this anniversary? I don't know if I'm surprised. Uh, I, I guess my I guess my biggest fear. My biggest fear was that this event would go 
unnoticed, unrecognized, um, just like just the wind blowing and nothing happening. Um, so for me, the fact that I'm able to talk on this show about it, I've given presentations about it, I've shot some film about it, and had people becoming more aware, to me, that's a victory. Whatever comes from that, um, I'll be happy, maybe happier. But I just want to do whatever I can to see that this event gets the attention that it deserves. And whatever form that that takes, uh, that, that, will, that will be satisfying to me. You're a professor. What are your students telling you about their observations of this date when they find out about it? Well, I mean, it's... Uh, Again, I share it, but I don't. When I'm teaching journalism, it may come up, uh, but it's 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 mixed views. I mean, people will will be aware of it, and, and again, like many people, they're not aware of it when it happens. When I think they find out about it, it's something that you know that they think about, and it's usually a surprise. Frank Harris III is professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University, again, uh, working to raise awareness about uh, this 400th uh, anniversary since enslaved Africans were brought to what is now the United States. Uh, Frank, keep us posted. Thank you. Today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff, our technical director is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Also, links to Overlooked earlier, we spoke about that, a New York Times archival project with a, a link to learn more about some of the notable people that history has overlooked. Also, I want to uh, mention to our listeners that uh, Where We Live is continuing our coffee break series. We're going to be at the Washington Street Cafe, coffee house rather, uh, February 20th. More information on our Facebook page. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.